Hey everyone, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Kristen Sinat, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. On this week's episode, fellow reviewer Drew Kelly and I are talking to one of our newest Blister recommended shops, Hickory and Tweed. While they are new to our program, they certainly aren't a new shop. Founded in 1961, Hickory and Tweed has quite the history, and we go over that with Mac and Skip Beitzel, owners of the shop. We also talk about their skiing backgrounds, which include hot dogging and ski ballet, skiing in New England, personal ski preferences, their blow your mind guarantee, and so much more. It was a great conversation, but before we get into that, I want to let you know that Open Snow is offering our Blister audience a 60-day free trial. If you're unfamiliar with Open Snow, they're the most trusted source for the most advanced snow forecast, snow reports, high-resolution map overlays, and ski conditions information. With Open Snow, you can customize your account by selecting your favorite mountain, favorite regional forecaster, or by selecting the type of pass you have this winter. You can also set up notifications to alert you if your mountain receives more than a certain amount of snow. So say your Norwegian flu, as my coworker used to call it, sets in when six inches of new snow falls overnight. Open Snow will let you know when it's time to head to the mountains. So head over to opensnow.com backslash blister and get started today. I also want to let you know about our upcoming Blister Summit. It'll be taking place February 12th through the 16th in Mount Crested Butte. On February 12th, that's our travel day. There's no on-snow demos that day, so you don't need to be there early. Just plan to arrive in Mount Crested Butte around 5 p.m. that day for the welcome reception. And the next four days, February 13th, 14th, 15th, and 16th, those are the days that you're going to have on-snow demos and nightly panel sessions. And by on-snow demos, I mean you'll be able to test the gear on resort at Crested Butte Mountain Resort, in the backcountry with Irwin Guides, or early morning Dawn Patrol. So you're going to be able to test this gear in a variety of different terrain and conditions. And last but not least about the Blister Summit, the lineup is already looking really good and we're continually adding brands. So right now we have a couple new brands over the last week, including Thermic and DinaFit skis and DinaFit boots. We add them to our existing list that includes Renown, Rosignol, DinaStar, Forefront, Folsom, Solomon, Wagner Custom Skis, Line, Blizzard, Glade, Meyer, Majesty, Ordofox, Deuter, DPS, Scott, Wonder Alpine, Fisher, Elan, Flylo, and more. So check out our show notes for a link to registration or head over to blisterreview.com and look for the Blister Summit in the nav bar. Lots more information available on our website. And let's get on to our conversation with Skip and Mac Beitzel and Drew Kelly. So welcome to the podcast, Skip and Mac Beitzel. It's great to have you guys. I've got Drew Kelly here too with uh, Blister. So Hickory and Tweed is one of our recommended shops in the tri-state area. And we're going to, you guys can just go over a little bit of the history because you guys have been around quite a long time and there's a bit of a storied history. So um, Skip, do you want to give us uh, some insight on that? You bet. I just want to start off by saying that uh, I've been the owner for 37 years and my son, Mac, is taking over. Hasn't kicked me out yet. 
But the store, the store and our customers are so blessed as I am to have Mac taking over Hickory and Tweed. Just want to say that up front. Hickory and Tweed was started in 1961 in Armont, New York by a remarkable human being and merchant named Jimmy Ross and his wife, Roberta. Also in 1961 is when Stratton Mountain in Vermont opened. And interestingly, when IBM corporate headquarters opened in Armonk, which was a sleepy little town, and they were up on the hill, and they were always known as Big Blue, we were Little Blue. And in 1961 is when I moved from Philadelphia with my family to Chappaqua, New York, and they, my parents took us to Hickory and Tweed as kids. And in 1968, I was a little... Uh, freshman in high school, and I begged Jimmy Ross for a job, and he said, "Sure, sweep the floors." And I was like, "Thank you so much." And that those next four years are literally where I where I grew up. Uh, I was in high school, but I literally grew up at Hickory and Tweed, and then I uh, went to the University of Vermont. I worked there during college, and then years and years and years later, this is all fate, by the way, total fate. Uh, Jimmy approached me to purchase the store, and that was in 1985. I moved from Manhattan to Armonk, and Jimmy moved from Armonk to Aspen, and uh, and it was it, it that was fate, and uh, and I've been the owner for 37 years. Can you tell us exactly where Armonk is relative to you came from Manhattan, and you're talking about Stratton, kind of lay, lay of the land? Where is the shop? That's a great question, Kristen. Armont, New York is about 45 minutes north of New York City, if there's no traffic, just north of White Plains, New York. We are virtually on the border with Greenwich, Connecticut, which is awesome. And so we have a large draw, uh, really, from the tri-state area, New Jersey, Connecticut, New, New York, and Manhattan. Manhattan. Skip, when you wanted a job originally at Hickory and Tweed, was it skiing and skiing culture that drew you there or was it just the memories of going to hickory and tweed as a kid and the people that helped you out the employees there that you just it was a place that you really enjoyed uh definitely the latter drew hickory and tweed was for all of us the skier kids that was the cool place and uh myself my sister my brother we loved going there with my mom and dad and and Jimmy was, as I said, a remarkable merchant. He knew everybody, remembered names, knew where you skied, and uh, it was it was an awesome experience to go to Hickory and Tweed. I get the sense that like sort of his spirit or ethos has you know continued through Hickory and Tweed throughout the years. Drew taught me everything I know and use to this day, including merchandising, customer service, hiring young staff like he hired me when I was 13. Uh, we do that to this day and train those kids. And uh, they go on to college and most of them come back during the holidays to work at Hickory and Tweed. And uh, uh, so, yeah, to, to your latter point. Can you uh, explain the name Hickory and Tweed? It's not one we commonly run into in the <laughs> in shops in general, and I, I think it has a really good explanation. So uh, you're right, Mac. You want to take that? 
Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, Hickory and Tweed, definitely a unique, uh, unique name for sure. Um, Hickory being the first common wood using or used in, uh, the original skis, Hickory wood. Um, and then Tweed wools was the first, uh, material used in kind of a larger scale with, uh, ski jackets or outerwear. Um, so hence Hickory and Tweed kind of harkens back to, um, the heritage of skiing, the origins of the sport. We like to think we're, we're pretty old school as well. Um, so kind of goes hand in hand, um, hence Hickory and Tweed. Let's segue into your skiing background. It sounds like Skip, you were interested in it and kind of really eager to get into the shop. Um, sounds like what were you skiing when you were very young? Like where was your family going? And same for you, Mac, as you were growing up, kind of what's your background with the sport? Uh, I grew up around the shop. Um, I guess my, my racing days ended in the Sun Valley Ski School. That was as far as I went racing. Uh, but that's where I learned to ski. Uh, Sun Valley, Idaho? Uh, Idaho, yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. Excellent. Um, yep, that's where we always grew up going. Um, that's on, where I learned to ski. On Dollar um, Mountain. On Dollar, Dollar Mountain, yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, which is an amazing place to learn, just an amazing place in general, uh, Sun Valley, Idaho. Um, but luckily enough, we, we kind of transitioned to the East Coast um, days up in Stowe, Vermont, which is kind of our de facto home mountain now. Um, so it was it was a pretty uh, we love Stowe uh, terrain wise up there. Uh, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty prime time up there in terms of the terrain. So going back from Sun Valley to Stowe was was awesome as a little kid. So we'll, it was an easy transition for me. And like I said, I was a pretty, pretty naive little kid anyways. So, yeah, transition wise, it was it was fine. It, I loved it. And then I, I kind of grew up in the I found the terrain park pretty quickly. I'm, I'm 33. So as soon as kind of freestyle or free skiing, uh, the skiing and the train parks in general was kind of taken off in the early 2000s. I, I was kind of uh, in awe of what they were doing when like Tanner Hall and Ewan Olsen were just like on, on the come up. It was it was cool watching those guys. So I spent a lot of my time in the early years in the terrain park and then uh, went to Camp of Champions out in Whistler for a couple of seasons. But now the no longer Camp of Champions, but um, I had an amazing time there for a few seasons and then I went to St. Lawrence University in upstate New York, small little school, but pretty hardcore skiing school. So I skied up north uh, a lot in college and then been lucky enough to uh, to sample a lot of the mountains out west. And we love going to Zermatt in Switzerland. So, yeah, I've been really fortunate enough to to sample a lot of really cool spots. And Stowe, you'd still consider Stowe your home mountain or do you guys? Yep, Stowe would be considered our home mountain. Uh, a little far, but um, we say it's it's worth the trip. That extra couple hours from from southern and central Vermont, terrain-wise, it's we love it. We love it. Skip, do you want to give us a history of? Yeah, yeah. I I think I have an interesting one. My parents took us to Stratton for several years when it opened in 1961, and then they moved us up to Madonna Mountain, which is now called Smuggler's Notch, just on the other side of Stowe. We were one of the first families to go up there. We saw the village uh, create, be created. Anyway, I raced up there with the Madonna Cats. And then uh, I segued uh, um, with the Cochrans, by, by the way, uh, which was interesting. Then I segued to freestyle skiing, which back then was called hot dog skiing. 
Uh, but I was in the first generation of that sport uh, at the first contest at Waterville Valley when I was in high school. My friends sent me up there. My roommate was Wayne Wong. There, are, I know there will be listeners who, wow. who know Wayne and uh, Floyd Wilkie, George Askevold. In any event, I was the first generation uh, freestyle, and I, I did it all through uh, the University of Vermont. And uh, my sister Tish was a year behind me. She was mm -hmm. on, I was on the Chevrolet tour. She was on the Colgate Palmolive tour. And then um, after I graduated, I, I was done with that. But I was there, you know, for the first generation of, of freestyle skiing, and it was terrific, terrific. That's amazing. So hot dog skiing was like mogul skiing and freestyle skiing combined, if I'm correct? I'll, I'm going to date myself, Drew. It, it was it was aerials, okay. bump skiing, and ballet skiing. Ah. I was uh, I was there with uh, Susie Chaffee and others when ballet skiing was uh, part of the overall score, and uh, a bunch of us had to uh, rapidly learn <laughs> ballet skiing, and uh, it was uh, it was a hoot. It was it was a blast. When you say you had to rapidly learn ballet skiing, was that always the event within greater hot dog skiing that everyone kind of rolled their eyes at? Or was that like equally as cool as everything else? You know, for a lot of us, it was equally as cool as everything else, Drew. Uh, and it was part of the overall score. So, you know, some yeah. people were ballet experts and they would win that event. But a lot of us were going for the overall score. And I and to this day, you know, it's bumps and aerials that uh, you know get get all the attention or got most of the attention. But the ballet back then, it was uh, it was uh, it was really something to watch. So, Skip, I think you are the first person on the podcast, and that I have ever spoken to that has done ballet. Um, this is amazing because when I was growing up, I my dad was a ski patrol at Loon Mountain. And when I turned six, I had to pick between the race program and whether I wanted to do the uh, freestyle team. And it included ballet. I'm dating myself, too. And I was like, I love ballet. Obviously, I want to do that. But then my parents got nervous about the crowds at Loon and we moved to a different mountain that did not have this opportunity. So I have never lived out my childhood dream of being a ballet skier. And I'm a bit jealous and I kind of want some <laughs> video footage of you doing this. But if it exists, please share. I don't think it does, Kristen. But, uh, but I, I enjoyed uh, uh, learning it. And I enjoyed being with those people who were really good at it. So did you guys tour all over the East? Yeah, we, we Tish and I, we primarily stayed in the East. I think she went out West a couple of times with the, the Colgate Palmala tour, but I was at the University of Vermont, so I I, ma I mainly stayed with the Eastern events, uh, Waterville Valley, Stratton. Um, uh, I think there was one at Stowe, and uh, and it was it was great. It was great to be at the University of Vermont. The uh, ski team coach uh, let us train in the gym on the trampolines and stuff like that, and. Uh, it was really something. I love that. That's yeah. Just kind of makes me smile at the, the way things used to be. Kind of wish some of those tours were still around. What equipment were you, did you have different skis for different events? Yes. Uh, 
Wow, Drew. Yes, we we had the uh, the very very short uh, skis for the moguls. You know, like one fifties, one sixties, and back then no, normally I'd be on two hundred threes, two hundred sevens. The the ballet skis were short and uh, very flexible, and then for the aerials, I think we just used our you know our regular skis. Uh, um, and it's amazing. You know, how do we do all that on that equipment back then? Exactly. So then from there, you graduated UVM. Did you head, I don't think that, I don't remember the exact timeline, but did you head right to Hickory and Tweed or did you have a, some interlude there? No, I, uh, I, I, I went to, uh, biz, to business school thinking that the larger corporate world would be for me. And I went, uh, I went into the advertising business in Manhattan for a wonderful company called Young and Rubicam, which Matt can speak to as well. And then again, fate, Kristen, fate. Uh, after about five years there, Jimmy Ross, the owner of the Tweed, we were walking on the beach and he said, I'm selling this store and you should buy it. And I'm like, no, you won't. It's all you. He said, no, I want to move to Aspen. In any event, like I said, six months later, I was out of Manhattan in Armonk at Hickory and Tweed, and Jimmy moved to Aspen. And, so, uh, and, and Mac himself, he worked at, at Young and Rubicam after college. And, uh, and after several years there, uh, I don't want to take your, your thunder, Mac, but, but he, he called me and said, Dad, I love this business, but I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Can I work with, I'd like to work with you. And then that rest is history. Yeah, thankfully he he said yes, and he he let me work with them uh, or him uh, back at Hickory and Tweed. But yeah, I spent a similar amount of time in the ad ad business right after school. I liked it, but I quickly realized, and I kind of always knew in the back of my head that eventually I'd I'd like to come back and and join the shop um, as a full time full time job because that's what I I really love to do. Um, advertising gave me a good kind of platform as far as marketability um, and how to promote the shop. Um, so that gave me a good base, but in the back of my head, I, I always knew I would, I'd love to go back to the shop and, and work full time. Um, and it's been great working with my dad thus far. <laughs> it's been a pretty seamless transit. I mean, it's been 10 years now uh, for myself working full time, but we have a, an awesome relationship. Um, I know so sometimes family businesses can be tricky um, from what I hear from other experiences, but um, speaking for myself, and I hope speaking for my dad as well, it's it's been amazing. Yeah, it seems like Hickory and Tweed has that. I mean, it's family owned and operated, and just has that vibe where it it would lend itself to being a good experience to to have the actual family all there. Um, so one of the when I first spoke to you guys, one of the things that stood out for me with Hickory and Tweed, and something I I found really interesting was your seasonal lease program. We have. A number of our shops have seasonal lease programs and with uh, I have a four-year-old son so the fact that these lease programs exist it's it's amazing but I think the history behind yours is pretty impressive and um, would one of you tell our listeners about that? Because I was there in the late 60s uh, as I told you IBM World Headquarters was up on the hill and a very good customer was Tom Watson who was CEO, president, chairman, everything at IBM. And one day he was talking to Jimmy 
And he said, Jimmy, you know, I don't, I don't sell my IBM mainframe computers. I lease them. Is there some way that you could lease ski equipment instead of having swaps and things like that? And it took Jimmy about 30 minutes to realize kids, kids, lease to kids. Don't just swap things around. Uh, they're always growing. Uh, I've got the equipment. And I think, and I could be wrong, but I think that's what made Hickory and Tweed first. I think we were first to lease ski equipment based on that uh, suggestion from, from Mr. Watson. And um, it's, it's, it's amazing. And it's, you know, we pay attention to many things at the store, but we pay most attention to the lease program. From a more recent perspective, especially the past several years, uh, the origin story is, is super interesting, um, super unique. And as far as the growth recently, it's it's exploded. Like like Skip said, it's it's something we really focus on. It brings in those generations and creates generations of customers. I mean, I think we have a couple of families that four generations of of customers are, are have been in the store at at once. And we have photos on the wall. It's it's pretty amazing. And I think it, it really lends itself to the lease program where kids will grow up. Swapping out skis for the next size as they grow creates that uh, repeat customer. That I think the loyalty to the store, as long as we're, we continue to do our jobs properly and give them that good in-store experience and obviously comfortable, appropriate equipment, it brings those customers back. It creates that connection and and relation to the store, which creates that those families of fourth generation customers. It's it's pretty incredible to see, and um, I don't know if a lot of I'm sure ski the ski industry. Um, definitely has that that loyal customer but not a lot of small businesses can say they have four generations of of customers coming in the shop especially at once too it's pretty incredible especially with i mean covid has thrown a wrench into a lot of businesses the past few years um thankfully we've been in the outdoor apparel and ski industry um so we've been pretty fortunate to experience this boom and whether it be the ski industry or, or bikes as well the the lease business has just exploded with Returning customers and a ton of new customers. People are just getting into the sport for the first time. Skip likes to say skiing is quote unquote cool again. So what the, the demand is is crazy. And I'm sure being a ski podcast or outdoor podcast, it's that's nothing new to hear for a lot of people, but at least for the store uh here here at Hickory and Tweed, it's it's been wild to see the demand in skiing again. So for your lease program, are you getting a lot of never evers? Or is it is it a full range of never evers to like people that ski you know twenty days a year but they're good skiers? Can you do you lease products for the whole spectrum of skiers and age? Like it sounds like kids definitely. You have adult packages. How does your lease program work? Do they buy it? Do they uh, and then sell it back? Can you give us a little bit of a overview on that part of it too? Yeah, I can kick it off, Skip, and then jump in for sure. So yeah, we have. As far as customers, yeah, we have a, a ton of first timers, people just trying to get the taste of skiing, especially during COVID, to get outdoors, figure something out that's safe and appropriate during during those times. A lot of return uh, skiers to the to sport uh, when people couldn't really do much else, uh, especially during the winter months when they were stuck inside. And then we have, uh, I mean, people who a lot of people will have their own boots that they keep for 
several years uh, and just rent skis. And then we have expert skiers. Uh, we have parents that just go a few times with their kids who are learning to ski and maybe aren't ready to invest in a whole new setup, but definitely want to get out with the little ones. So it's a full gamut of skiers in terms of kind of uh, the customer and who they are. And as far as the equipment itself, yeah, we have our, our base packages for sure, which uh, you'll see on the hill all the time. Uh, just getting people going for, for the novice skiers, uh, learning the fundamentals of edging, proper turning and stopping technique. And then what's cool is we offer a lot of a la carte packages. So for those the little rippers out there, um, we have all mountain packages. So a skis with wider waists, um, some different rocker profiles if they're going out west um, or in the terrain park. We definitely offer high performance packages. And then Skip, I don't know if you want to, a huge part and a really unique part of the lease program is um, our race stock equipment uh, for our junior and high school racers in the area. Yes, that's, uh, and that's grown dramatically as well. Uh, and particularly lately, a lot of little racers coming into Hickory and Tweed uh, and, and we've got, We've got the slalom skis, we've got the GS skis, we've got the racing poles, the guards, the, the helmets, uh, and we outfit these kids uh, for their race uh, season. And, um, you know, the Lang race boots, and uh, it, it's really grown kind of commensurate with the rest of the program. And it's a big capital investment to get into that race Thing. those skis are not that equipment is not inexpensive but it's it's uh you know those racers come back like others year after year after year so it's uh it's really uh it's a big piece of the lease program now the racing skiing to me forever has been an unsubstitutable family experience and i really believe that uh it's not necessarily inexpensive never has been but i do think it's unsubstitutable as a way to be together as a family share as you said the experience of skiing as a family you know you got to get there together usually these families have lunch together and then you got to come home together and you're sharing that you know it's all around this wonderful sport called skiing and and snowboarding where is your clientele uh, skiing? Are they mostly sticking close to home? Are they doing the stow uh, drives? Are they heading west? Like, what are you seeing? Where where are these race programs too? I'm curious. A lot of it is um, sort of a local high school programs. Um, and then a lot of racers will ski in what's called the tri-states as well. Um, and so mountains like Catamount, um, Wyndham Mountain, uh, Mohawk Mountain, and then they'll go up to, to Southern Vermont in Stratton, Okemo, Killington. Um, it depends on kind of the age of the skier, um, what programs are skiing in. But for where we are, I mean, there's a pretty robust um, high school r racing program, which is really cool to see because we're not necessarily close to the mountains. We have certainly local mountains, but there's some really avid and dedicated skiers um, and racers that grow up with us. Uh, like a, touching back on the lease program, we'll continue to. Um, we'll outfit them with new gear as they continue to grow. It's cool to see them progress um, into kind of the, the next tier or next echelon of racing. Um, some will go off to um, college and race as well. And then as far as clientele, where they're going in general, I think we have a 
a really interesting cross section of skiers in our area. Um, like a, we kind of touched on, we have the first time skiers that'll just go local for the day. The closest mountain to us is Thunder Ridge, um, which is super easy uh, to get to really good access in terms of Westchester and even even Manhattan customers. And then we have the the weekend warriors that uh, will go up to Stratton, Okemo, Killington every weekend. Um, super dedicated family skiers or or racers that are that are going up literally every weekend uh, and driving back late Sunday night. And then we have the pe- the customers that all that just ski out west. They do their their uh, Utah, or Colorado, Canada trips every year. And then we have the customers that'll they they go to Europe. They go straight to the Alps for the week or two weeks every year. So that's what's really cool to see. You never know who's really going to walk through the door and what type of skier or where they're going to go. But I think where we're located, like I said, we see a really cool cross section of the the ski customer and kind of what their background is. Of the of the really dedicated skiers um, that you guys see, is there a ratio of like racers to park skiers to just all mountain skiers? Is there who's who are the skiers that you're seeing? Uh, so. I, I think it's it's primarily all mountain skiers. Um, I think it's we're we're pretty uh, pretty aligned with I'd, I'd say the ski industry itself. So all mountain skiers being the the primary customer, um, the, the race program has been growing a lot, and especially um, East Coast uh, hard packed snow. Um, it gives the kids um, a great uh, kind of base of fundamentals to then go out. That's why I think you see a lot of um, really good East Coast skiers do well um, on kind of adult race circuits, stuff like that. Um, they, with the hard pack snow conditions, we get a lot here on the East Coast. They have really good fundamentals starting out in, in race programs. And you see the, those transplants out in, in Utah and Colorado. And like, oh, I, I grew up in, in Southern New York, but they absolutely rip. And it's, I think it's because they have a, a great base um, of fundamentals learning to ski on probably less than ideal conditions a lot of times. So when they're on some kind of primo snow conditions, they they rip. Uh, and then we also get the park skiers as well. I'd say kind of maybe slightly less so than the race segment, but they're definitely out there. Uh, and they're, we get customers that they're sending us, little kids are sending us videos of them on the rotor ramps up in Lake Placid. They're going to the camps. Um, and then we see them apply kind of what they learned over the summer. We see them in the winter hitting the park. It's, it's pretty cool to see the progression. Um, I'm really curious about, cause I haven't spent much time down in your area and you mentioned the closest mountain was Thunder Ridge. Can you tell me a little bit about Thunder Ridge? Like what's the vertical, like what is there? Imagine there's ski school. I, I just, I love the little mountains. Like parents took uh, us there in the sixties. It was called Birch Hill. Then it became Big Birch. Now it's Thunder Ridge. The uh, the vertical, Kristen, I couldn't tell you. It's it's not big, but they're the only game in town. Uh, we send a ton of people up there who are beginners, and uh, they have a great ski school for the family. You know, particularly for the kids. It's a half hour north of Hickory and Tweed. Uh, they work hard to make snow and to take care of the snow they make. And uh, a, l- a lot of the racers from our from our high school community, that's where they race, up at Thunder Ridge. So we're lucky to have that in our backyard. Nice. I like that. There's so many small ski areas. I think, does New York have the most small ski areas of any state in the country? Or is 
it might be second, something like that. It's from what I've read, it's it's yeah per ca- or per state. Uh, yeah, it's got the most gears per state. Yeah, I want to say it's like fifty three or something ridiculous. And I had heard of Birch Hill actually, so um, I guess I've heard of that area. But yeah, I, I love those little ones, especially when they they stick around. Skip, you mentioned Thunder Hill working hard to make snow, and that makes me curious what your guys what the timeline of your guys' winter is and what the snow looks like over the season. Is it mostly man-made, at least in your area? Um, does it kind of, is there still a good bit of natural snow mixed with that? Well, every year is different, Drew. Uh, we yeah. all we all look forward to Killington uh, opening up uh, sometime soon. It's amazing what they do. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if towards the end of the month, uh, they start, you know, cranking the guns. And I will say this, and they're doing it again. They they signed up again. They are hosting the Ladies World Cup mm-hmm. at Thanksgiving time. And they've been doing it for many years now. And everybody's like, what? Thanksgiving? And yet, yeah. Drew, they've got the snow, whether it's the natural or what they make. They've got the goods, and the crowds are huge, and it's kind of like the official start of winter for us down, yeah. down here in, in Westchester County. And then, uh, you know, December, you know, is, anything can happen in, in, in December, you know, in, including it being cold enough for Thunder Ridge to make snow. It, you know, we have plenty of customers, they ski well into April wherever they're going, because they can. You know, up in Vermont, it's not unusual to do that. So your ski season, as far as resort skiing, is very similar, if not the same as ours out here in Colorado and New Mexico. Yeah, it's super similar. I mean, we have customers, (laughs) uh, touching back on our lease program, that particularly first-time customers or people that are newer to the sport of skiing that are returning or they they assume they should return their skis kind of um, mid March or end of March, and we're like, don't don't return the equipment. We don't want to back go go skiing. There's still some awesome conditions um, up in. I mean, March is my favorite month to ski um, in the Northeast. Uh, so we a lot of times we'll refuse to take back the equipment and just tell people keep go keep go skiing. It's it's unreal up there right now um you can get some awesome conditions sometimes the crowds are a little bit more lax too so yeah we we sometimes turn turn customers around and tell them to keep their equipment go ski in some more it's there's still some awesome conditions out there i like the idea that you're like actually no you can't return the skis <laughs> until this the mountains are closed sorry uh, i should mention we we of course will accept the equipment yeah. back <laughs> but uh we we want we want everyone to get the most out of ski season because um i think people assume that uh, kind of once February or the coldest temps are gone, that ski season uh, is winding down, which is true in a sense. But like I said, March is our favorite month to ski. Some of the best conditions and snowpack still remains um, up on those mountains in March and into early April. I'm glad you're encouraging people like that because I agree March is some of the best skiing. I like skiing through April um, or trying to, even if it's sun cups and yeah, just snow to make it happen. Okay. So we've talked a bit about your clientele and the area. Um, let's talk about the products you carry in the store. I, be narrow and deep is something I've heard from both of you. So can you c- explain that and 
what products are you choosing and how are you choosing them? Well, I'll start off with that because I learned that from Jimmy Ross, uh, particularly with hard goods, Kristen. Be, be narrow and deep. Make sure that every ski has a reason for being on that wall and that you can explain it to the customer and why you don't have certain skis. And um, for years, we just carried uh, Bokel and Kessley. That was a long time ago. Uh, we branched out a little bit. Uh, we love Dina Star and we have Nordica and Black Crows. Um, uh, and the boots, Technica, Nordica, and Lang, which we've been selling for years. And we kind of cover every base, I think, Kristen, with that product lineup with bindings, look bindings, which I love, and marker. And that's the bindings. And with poles, uh, we've been with Lecky for many, many years. And, uh, and that works very well. The narrow and deep it doesn't apply so much downstairs with the fashion where my wife, Michaela, does the buying. We are more broad for sure. And when we change every year, because she may find something really nifty and bring it in. But anyway, the narrow and deep product philosophy it makes it easier in the buying. It makes it easier in the selling. And, uh, and, and it, it's, I think it's very effective, particularly in hard goods. Skip, you mentioned you were a fan of uh, look bindings. We are about to do a binding shootout this winter uh, at Blister. So we're going to take all these bindings that, you know, are available on the market and we're going to, you know, every, every company says they have the best binding and we're curious to figure out what they actually feel like in comparison to each other on the snow, all on the same pair of skis and get a sense if we can sort of qualify those bindings a little bit. Um, what makes you a look fan? Cause there's a lot of them out there. Well, look bindings have always been at Hickory and Tweed. That was Jimmy's favorite. In fact, for many, many years, Drew, that that's all you bought at Hickory and Tweed was look bindings. And to this day, I'm I'm not trying to sell you, but I to me it's the most resilient, most elastic binding on the market. That turntable heel is a hallmark to me in the ski industry. I've grown up with the binding. I've never gotten hurt. I tell people, you know, if you watch the X Games or some of those um, extreme skiing uh, videos, a lot of those men and women are on look bindings. I think because of that resiliency and elasticity. And uh, anyway, I'm a I'm very biased towards look. Yeah, I, I ski uh, look as well. I've trusted, uh, knock on wood, I haven't had any uh, lower body injuries as well. And I hope that continues. Uh, but I think, yeah, that lends itself to the confidence in, in the look pivot binding. The mounting position too, like the, the screw pattern uh, on the toe and heel just allows... Um, it's a lot closer to the middle of the ski and allows the ski to flex kind of with its original intent or original shape from the ski manufacturer or ski design itself. And like I said, uh, or like Skip touched on as well, the, the elasticity of the binding allow or kind of prohibits um, pre-releasing as well. So we all as skiers want to release when we should, but we're also in some precarious positions where you don't want to uh, pre-release as well because that can put you in some really dangerous spots. And I think um, Skip touched on the free skiers and the guys in the park. A lot of them are on the pivots as well. 
um, to allow kind of step or prohibit uh, or prevent, I should say, stepping out of the bindings or pre-releasing um, as much as um, well, us wanting to release as well. So as far as uh, skis go, it sounds like you you have a very curated selection. Uh, is there a common width underfoot that seems to sell out faster or be more popular in your area? Sure. Uh, I can start out with that one. Yeah. So the skis, um, I think that are most versatile, most appropriate for the majority of our customers. Uh, the ones I like selling the most, because uh, I think it's super practical for a lot of our customer base, um, tends to be around the 90 waist width. Um, I think a lot of the ski companies are putting uh, a lot of their best technology um, from what we're hearing from the reps um, and us skiing them as well uh, on demo days are putting their their best technology into that segment, um, for at least for the brands we carry. Uh, super, super versatile ski for kind of Southern Vermont, Northern Vermont, um, and even kind of in the Berkshires around here, our local mountains. Um, I mean, it's kind of a... I hear way too many people, or I get sick of the term one ski quiver, but people say it because it's true. Um, a lot of our customers can take a, like a vocal kendo or a, a Blizzard Brahma, uh, Dina Star M Free, or excuse me, M Pro 90, um, and really take it anywhere on the East Coast. Um, take it out West as well. Um, unless you're getting kind of a true, true epic powder day, um, that 90 waist width seems to be a, a huge sweet spot for our customers. And like I said, I think. A lot of the best technology um, from these ski brands are, are going into those models, that category. I'd love to hear you speak more about why you hate the one ski quiver term. I, I just it's the it's used very frequently. I think it's it's approached its wear out phase. Um, I'm happy to I have yet to come up with one, but introduce a new term similar. Um, I, I've. I think it's just kind of approached its its wear out. Um, I've just heard it so much and applied maybe um, to skis that may not be <laughs> a one ski quiver. And a one ski quiver can mean a lot of things to different skiers, um, whether it's the terrain they're skiing, their ability. Um, so I would say it's just kind of approached its its wear out phase at this point. And Drew, to your point, we we definitely have customers. Uh, they own two pairs of skis. They own a pair of frontside carvers that they use up at Stratton and then skis like Mac just described where if it snows at Stratton bingo and they'll take them out west too so they own two pairs of skis and and so you touched on a little bit like big power days what's a pow ski for you guys I, I think I saw on your website maybe the mantra 102 is the widest at least on your website is that the that's the same for in-store? Uh, so we have a couple... Mo yeah, the, so Mantra M2 is up there. Um, we have new inventory going up on the site every day. We've The ski industry is still... Um, it's, uh, it's, it's stressed just because of the sheer demand. Everyone wants new equipment. So there's still some, some delays to, to no fault of the companies themselves. It's just there's so much going on these days. So new inventory is going up on the, on the site daily. Um, the Nordica uh, 104 free, Enforcer 104 free. Um, I'm going to pick up a pair myself this season. I think um, that ski absolutely rips. Um, so stable. It, <laughs> it performs so well on hard pack too for being 104 um, underfoot. Uh, that's such a fun ski. Um, but a lot of our customers, um, 
because of that, because it can still use it on the East Coast. Um, we'll use that as a powder ski as well. And then um, Black Crows is a, a newer brand in our lineup. Um, we've probably been with them uh, five or six years now. Um, so the Camox and the Atris ski at, at 108 would be kind of uh, as, as wide as we'd normally get um, as far as kind of uh, normal inline inventory. And then if we don't have it, we'd, we'd go to the mat for the customer to, to get that ski from the brands we carry. Um, if they're looking for kind of a true epic powder, powder only ski in a wider waist width. Uh, Mac, you mentioned that you were going to get yourself a pair of Nordica Enforcer Free 104s. And I was just curious what some of both you and Skip's equipment currently or from the past there is stuff that has stuck with you that you've enjoyed um, when you guys go out skiing. Sure. Yeah. So, um, we, we kind of mentioned Black Crows. Uh, they've been a newer brand to us. They do an amazing job. I think the first thing you see is the graphics. Um, with Black Crows, they stand out on, the, in, on any ski wall. They do an amazing job with those. I think they're a super forgiving ski. So we were comfortable putting most of their models on a lot of types of skiers as well. I've been skiing the Camox uh, primarily the last couple of seasons. I find that I can kind of really take it anywhere on the mountain. And I don't need to assert myself in the, those afternoon kind of tired runs. I can still ski it and, and flex it just fine. And I, like I said, I, I take it everywhere. Uh, another ski that I've loved the past couple seasons, and I don't necessarily know if it gets enough buzz for whatever reason, but uh, I, I mentioned it's the, the Dinastar M Pro 90, I think is one of the most fun skis I've, I've tried out in the past few years. Like it's not, it's a super practical ski for a lot of skiers. It's super poppy, super lightweight. There's literally like no swing weight on the ski as well. It's, it's stiff where you need it. And it's, it just kind of eludes fun when, when you go out there and ski, you just want to kind of mess around, whether it's turning or just jumping off stuff. It's super poppy. Um, and like I said, for whatever reason, maybe it, it doesn't get as much talk as some of the other newer models, but yeah, the M Pro 90 has been one of my favorite skis the past couple of years. From, from Dina Star. And as a park skier, are you skiing skis like the M Pro 90 or the Camox in the park as well? Um, not, not as much. So the Camox I'll take in the park for sure. Um, I'm, I'm happily a, a, a dad skier, I'm proud to say. Uh, I have a 19 month year old. So my true park days are pretty far behind me at this point. Um, now I'm, I'm looking to have fun, kind of go all over the mountain. Uh, hop in the trees when I can and, and yeah, rip, rip the groomers. But, um, I would take the cam locks in the park sparingly, but uh, for, for true park skiing, yeah, it would, it would be a vocal revolt, most likely, uh, something maybe a little bit narrower, but the cam locks performs really well in the park, uh, full, full snappy wood. Um, uh, but like I said, I've, I've kind of moved on to dad skiing now. You won't find me as much in, in the terrain park anymore. Okay. Does dad skiing involve you going skiing with your nineteen year nineteen month year old? It it yeah it it will this this winter. Uh, I think I've convinced my wife Mary <laughs> that he may not necessarily be skiing quote unquote, but he'll definitely be on skis between my legs, um, which I'm really looking forward to, and will be most of my thrills uh, moving forward is getting to ski with him. I I I just want to chime in, you know, for years. We've been with Vocal. Uh, they call us the Vocal Shrine. Um, 
I love the mantras. Um, I, I too, am, I ski on the Black Crows, the Kamoks. But I want to mention the Nordica HF ski boot, the, the rear entry ski boot. Now, some people who are listening might chuckle. Don't. I have saved numerous ski careers with that boot. People coming in saying, I think I'm going to quit. I can't get my boots on. They're they're my age, granted. You know, they're the aging baby boomer. But I have I have sold so many of those boots to men and women who are and they're just comfortable and warm, so easy to put on, like thirty years ago with, with the rear entry boots. But today more uh more adjustable, uh customizable with the cork liner. I I just want to put a shout out to the Nordica HF because I think Nordica crushed it developing and bringing that boot to market. And I use myself as an example. Uh, it's just, I, I ski with more confidence now because of that doggone rear entry boot. And it is, it really is true. I've heard it. A lot of our employees on the ski floor are, <laughs> are getting sick of Skip talking about the HF, but the the amount no it's it's true the amount of um ski careers that's saved and prolonged um is pretty fascinating um and i mean it's a huge I mean, people talk about in the ski industry a lot what happens when the baby boomer generation kind of phases out which is the main demographic in the industry the fact that they we can um keep these people skiing and keep them skiing comfortably and enjoying it and prolonging them out on the hill is is an amazing thing to see um, people who are literally ready to quit um, and now this has kind of given them new life on the on the hill i highlight and then i'll i'll get off my soapbox that the the technology and skiing today uh has made the sport a whole lot more fun with a whole lot less work for everybody and that includes not just hard goods but what we wear uh, the technology on the mountain with snowmaking and grooming. I mean, it's amazing what technology has done for the for our sport. And to Max's point, to keep skiers my age out on the hill for a whole lot longer. You know, Skip, I, I actually want to hear you on your soapbox for longer. And so I'm curious, I haven't put on this boot. The, you can You can get into it easier, which is a huge thing. Does it ski well as well? It sounds like it skis well. Drew, for me, it skis fine. I'm I'm comfortable. I'm warm. I feel one like in that boot. I'm not out to win any races these days, but I, you know, I use it in Alta. If it's the epic powder that you talk about, I'm out there. I'm in the trees. Uh, maybe not like the old days, but I ski with renewed confidence, Drew, because this boot has. Uh, has really been terrific. I want to ask about soft goods because this is another thing that really stuck out about uh, Hickory and Tweed is the range of products you guys have from like different various price points to like very high end boutique outerwear to the standard like first time get out there um, and b- still be warm and protected from the weather. Like I- I'm just blown away. I- like I want to come shopping there because there's products I don't think I've ever seen in person at your shop. Can you explain the buying process on that? Or I guess it, if it's the clientele that's bringing that on, I imagine. Um, and it sounds like, well, anyway, I'll let you take it from there. 
Yeah, I'll, I, uh, I'll, I'm really speaking for my wife, Michaela. She's the head buyer, and she's amazing. First of all, she's got a great eye, if I can say that. Um, I'm biased. Um, but she works with uh, some other women in the store, Jerry Moore, Pam Conti, Debbie Caldwell, um, in the buying. And these, this group, this team is amazing, Kristen. And we do, we do run the gamut of, uh, of ski wear, you know, from the higher end, uh, Bogner, Amundsen, which is a new line for us in the past several years, which is amazing. Uh, right down through Patagonia, North Face, um, and, and Obermeyer, which, which we love and sells like crazy. So we do run the gamut and I'm, I just want to say Hickory & Tweed is blessed to have a team like we have for the uh, ski wear. Yes. And just to piggyback, sorry to jump in here, um, expanding kind of how lucky we are from our outdoor department, which is, is so true, particularly where we're located, not necessarily in kind of a resort town or right next to a bunch of mountains. Um, we're, we have been, we are super lucky and super blessed to have the staff that we have especially these days, it's, it's tough to find staff in general. Um, luckily, we haven't really been, been hit with that too much. But we have super passionate staff um, from our bike shop, our, our service center. The amount of work, the throughput that goes through that service center is um, thousands and thousands of skis and boards. Um, they work tirelessly, um, which we couldn't run without our service, the guys in our service center. Um, and our high school staff and our, our managers up on our ski floor for where we're located, the, the amount of passion and knowledge that our store is blessed to have is, I think, one of the main factors. Hickory and Tweed is, is surviving and successful after all these years. So I just want, yeah, I want to touch on that. Um, especially, like I said, these days, it's, you hear a lot of small businesses having challenges with staff. We're, we're super fortunate to have who we have. That's amazing. That just speaks to the institution that you guys are. And it reminds me of, Skip, when you were talking about being drawn to work for uh, the original owner, what drew you to the place was the employees in the store. And and rarely is it ever um, someone coming in out of the blue um, say, "Oh, I'm I'm just looking for a job. Are you guys hiring?" It's it's um, whether it be family ties or or ties through friends, high school staff that are um, figuring out what they want to do next or taking a year off from. From college, uh, they come back and are store shop veterans. The yeah, it's, it truly touches on kind of a family shop because it's we rarely source our our employees through someone just walking through the door. It's like, yeah, are you guys hiring? I'm I'm just looking for a job. Nice. So it sounds like you, you don't necessarily have a lot of turnover either in staff. No. Yeah, we're lucky. We're a lot of our a lot of our staff are our customers, our kids who grew up through our leasing program and are now able and. <laughs> Uh, old enough to work, uh, and that's where they get their first their first job, their first start. Um, and a lot of them are <laughs> because they've done it for so many seasons. They have a head start about how the store works, the leasing program, how to fit a boot properly, um, how to sell a ski, and of course, training comes with that. But um, a lot of these kids, yeah, grew up coming to the shop as customers. Um, so that we have a head start with with their knowledge of how we run and a knowledge of um, the ski industry in general. And I'll just say on a personal note, 
just like me, these kids learn how to work at the retail level with John Q. Public. And you get all kinds. Thankfully, at Hickory and Tweed, we, our customers are phenomenal. Phenomenal. But these kids, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, are working with families, moms and dads. And they're, these kids are remarkable. You mentioned that your customers are phenomenal. Um, what are the customer interactions that are most rewarding for, for each of you? Well, um, every customer in, in interaction is, is rewarding. I, uh, I off, you know, I'm often asked, Kristen, hey, do you have a ski house somewhere? And I tell them, you're in it. You're in my ski house. And by the way, as my as my customer, you're part of my family. And, and that guy you just worked with o- over there, he's for 20 years. He's been here. He's part of my family. So welcome. Welcome to my family. And I try to do that every day. And that's honestly how I feel and how the staff feels upstairs, downstairs, bike shop, service center. I think, Drew, you were the first one to, to mention the word family. Uh, that's what it is. Skip touched uh, a lot on kind of the, the brick and mortar, the retail level. What I love and what I enjoy seeing the most. So I, I focus a lot on the branding of the store as well. Um, so whether it be yeah, our, our custom merchandise, um, which we've had, we've been lucky enough to partner with a lot of our vendors to do some custom collaborations on. But I mentioned that because when I see a customer outside of the store or when I'm out skiing in Alta and I see a Hickory and Tweed shirt or we, we partner with um, the Moriarty family up in Stowe, Vermont and make some, uh, we're bringing back with, or they're bringing back, we are lucky enough to get to work and make some custom designs with um, the original PCAT from the 60s and 70s and have our own custom designs. So I mentioned that because when I see those hats um, up in Stowe or in Sugarbush and to know that yeah, a customer would want to associate themselves with the store and strike up a conversation. Um, they'll come back and tell us, hey, I, I saw another Hickering Tweed shirt out in Utah. And I they get to share their experiences with the shop. It was cool seeing that guy out there or that girl out there. Seeing our branded or custom merchandise out on the hill um, outside the shop is, is a really cool feeling. And a lot of those partnerships that you guys do is that sort of in like a retro or vintage style or or tell me about how some of those comes out yeah so i touched on so the mori already hats um they're they're uh producing under M- m3 hats now out of still vermont um we've been working with them probably for like uh six seven eight years now uh, they make some amazing as they always had um they're making some amazing um Kind of ind- individually made um, with the original production process, um, knit hats in Vermont, still like a, a cottage industry, like it was before with individual knitters. Uh, and we have some really cool custom designs with them, um, which we'll collaborate on each season and introduce. And they sell out every single season. It's pretty amazing. The custom wool, the PCATs, if you look up PCAT ski hat up online, you'll see that design. So th- that's been really cool to work with and the amount of connections we've kind of shared with them. and. Mutual ties we've had is really cool to explore going back with in Skip's day. And then we've also, we should mention um, Northland Skis out of Steamboat, Colorado. We just introduced them to the shop last year and we did a custom top sheet with them. Uh, they put our logo, which is actually pretty similar to their logo, <laughs> right in the top sheet. And those are handmade skis uh, out of, uh, excuse me, out of Steamboat, Colorado, like I mentioned. So, Drew, as you 
touched on, I mentioned that because a lot of it has that vintage, the kind of the heritage of skiing, that feel, rather than maybe cutting edge or fashion forward designs, which are more out there. Um, we really kind of focus on the, like I said, the historic look or that, that retro vibe that skiing used to have in its um, the heyday of ski fashion in the 70s and even 80s. Oh, I was just going to say, and what is, is, so you guys collaborated with Northland skis out of Steamboat, you said, for this top sheet. Did they put that on a range of skis? Did they put that on a ski that was like a ski suited for skiing in the Northeast? Tell me about that. Sure. So I want to ski this ski. Yeah, so you should. They're They're awesome. Luckily, so they're, I should say they're, they're just getting started or just revamping kind of the brand. Um, and it's still a, a smaller production team right now. So they're just really ramping up. Luckily, their first model was a front, a true frontside carver. Um, so super narrow at the waist. It's like 76 at the waist, 78 at the waist. So perfect ski for, uh, kind of Southern Vermont groomers. And they're expanding, I think, to, um, some wider weights or different, uh, shapes this season being part of their first launch. And they were only in a handful of stores, I think, to start out with, a handful of retailers. Um, last season, to be kind of identified and selected was uh, a really cool honor for us. And then getting to do a kind of a custom top sheet was cool for our customers as well to kind of represent the shop and with a perfectly shaped East Coast carving ski. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm I'm the uh, I'm the carving slash frontside guy at Blister. So I am hoping that I can get on this ski this year. Yeah, right on. Yeah, they were the um, like the number biggest ski brand I think in like going back to like the 30s and 40s. Uh, they made hockey sticks. Um, yeah, a, a bunch of products, and now uh, a father son team kind of relaunched that brand, and it's it's cool to see what they're doing out there. So, if somebody wants to purchase some of these Hickory and Tweed logo wear or these custom top sheet skis or any products from your stores. Is this an in-store only or what is your online presence? Yeah. So um, I, I, I'll i take that just because I initially uh, came back to work at the store full-time to kind of launch the... We've always had a website, but to launch the e-commerce portion uh, of the business, uh, which has been really exciting and, and growing. It's still... It's it's a supplement of our, of our retail business. We share inventory in-store and online. So what's the majority of what you see in our store, if you're a local customer... You can find it online as well. And new inventory is be, being added daily this season uh, as stuff to, continues to roll in. But it's, yeah, it's been a really cool project for me. I'm just coming from an advertising background to kind of um, a lot of our local customers grow up going to the store, the lease program. We've kind of touched on that. But to, to kind of introduce what Hickory and Tweed's all about as far as kind of a family owned um, kind of Harkening back to heritage skiing to kind of display that on our website to get people introduced to the shop and to the brands, whether they're in Colorado, we're shipping some of our, those, those Moriarty Peacats to uh, Sweden and Norway the past couple of seasons. It's cool to kind of interact and see a customer base without the physical confines of Westchester County, New York, and introduce Hickory and Tweed to a larger audience around the country. So, uh, last but certainly not least is what I keep hearing about from you two, uh, a blow your mind guarantee. Can you explain that to our listeners, please? Yes. I, that's something else that I learned decades ago from Jimmy Ross. Uh, you know, selling a pair of skis or a pair of boots, particularly, and this is a hard goods related, uh, issue or, or, uh, topic. 
they don't know how the boot's going to feel really once they're on the mountain or how that ski's going to ski. So I think it's important for my entire staff, not just me, uh, when they're done with the sale, uh, to say, you know what, this, this comes with our blow your mind guarantee. If these skis or these boots don't do what I said they're going to do and you're not feeling it, bring them back. We'll try something else. Uh, but, uh, you know, because this, what I just had with you is a two-way um, interaction of trust. You trusting me, I trust you. Uh, trust me, I think these skis will blow your mind. You're, you're going to turn to your wife and say, oh, my God, Skip was right. These are amazing. And I tell them, you know, if you're not turning to your wife and saying that, then bring them back. We'll try something else. And and Kristen, <laughs> I, I probably get back one or two skis or boots a year. And uh, it's nice to be able to say that because I do have trust in the equipment. The customer has trust in me, us, the staff. And predominantly, you know, mostly uh, the skis and boots do what we say they're going to do and perform. We don't use it as uh, kind of a, a sales tactic to get another pair of skis out the door, another pair of boots out the door just for the sheer sake of um, increasing sales. We don't slap stickers on the skis like a used car dealership to, to get people in the door or anything like that. But it, it just goes back to the trust that we try. We encourage customers to put their trust in us. Um, if we do our jobs right, we're going to choose an appropriate ski for, for you, a comfortable pair of boots for you based on the interaction. And this is why we think retail, or at least Hickory and Tweed, has a place in the world is um, getting that one-on-one -on -one interaction with a customer. Um, we're asking them for, for their trust um, based on kind of the knowledge and the training of our staff and the experience that we have. And if if we are not digging the ski, once you go out and use it for the season and you're maybe like in a different length or wasn't um, liking the performance that we initially talked about, then we'll make it work. Uh, the worst thing we can do is have a customer leave the shop unhappy, but it's a way to kind of instill that trust uh, in the shop that um, they can come back and, and we'll make it right. We'll, we'll find something different that they really are going to have a good time on the hill. And And lastly... Kristen, we, we don't use that up front. That comes at the very end when the customer may be walking out the door having purchased the equipment. That's the time when we say, oh, you know, by the way, this comes with our blow your mind guarantee and then we go into it. So it's something we use at the very end, not up front. Yeah, it's more of a have a nice day than a, we want to make this sale. Exactly. Like and 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 it just it's it's the end point of that trust that Mac was talking about. Well, I have to say, I have not been to the store yet, but next time I'm back east, which I am frequently, I need to come stop in for a visit because it sounds like a phenomenal shop. And hopefully, at some point, we can make some turns out on the mountain this season or next. So we'll have to start scheming that, whether getting you guys out west or us planning a trip closer to you guys. So it's. It's been great talking to you, uh, Mac and Skip uh, and Drew. Yeah, no, thank you guys for having us. Um, it's It's been an amazing start to the ski season here in the shop um, based on the, the amount of demand we've seen. Um, now we're just all waiting for the snow to fly. 
um, and hopefully hopefully get a, a good winner out there this season for sure. And on that note, that brings us to what we are celebrating this week, which is uh, for me again fall. Recently, I mentioned you know fall foods, pumpkin. Um, <laughs> pumpkin dishes. Uh, but it's also just that feeling of anticipation towards winter. I can smell it in the air. I can feel it in the temperatures. Talking to Mac and Skip has made me really nostalgic for just that experience of going to a ski shop and seeing what new gear there is for the year that I've been craving all summer and, um, and, and suiting up essentially, usually in the past that's been with my family. And, uh, so that's what I'm really looking forward to and, and savoring right now is that feeling of winter anticipation. Nice. I, I think what's interesting, and I always forget like the whole actual seasons, right? So since we're officially in fall, but winter doesn't actually start until like December 20th or something like that. So technically we are in the season where we start skiing. We start skiing in the fall, right? Around Thanksgiving, early December. So we are fall. We don't even have to wait till winter. We will ski in the fall, which is very exciting. Not, I mean, it's always celebrating that. But for me, as this, um, if, when you're listening to this podcast, I will be heading on a little mini vacation. I'll, I'll be in Europe for a work trip, but I... Instead of heading directly home to my four-year-old that I will and my husband that I'll miss, but I decided to meet a friend in Europe and we're going to be doing a little bit of tourist exploration in Budapest. I've never been super excited. So that is where I will be when this podcast uh, drops on our website. So that's what I'm celebrating. It's a little adventure. All right. On that note, I'll talk to you soon. All right, Kristen. Good talking to you. I'll talk to you soon as well. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Gear 30. I want to say thank you to Drew Kelly for co-hosting the episode with me. Thank you to Skip and Mac Beitzel for the conversation. And thank you to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us at Blister, thanks for listening. And we hope to see you all in Mount Crested Butte this February at our Blister Summit. Have a great weekend.